Wow, okay, so did you hear those readings? Weren't those great? Man, the anger of the Lord blazing hot against his people. Moses crying out to God, if you have any regard for me at all, if you like me just a little bit, would you just kill me now so I don't have to deal with these people anymore? That's what he said. Did you hear that? James tells us to turn our laughter into weeping and mourning, our joy into dejection and gloom. And Jesus tells us that if our eye causes us to sin, we should gouge it out. And if our hand or our foot causes us to sin, we should chop them off. It is better to live life maimed, he says, than to be thrown with all your parts into hell where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Okay, that's as fiery as I get. I'm sorry. I didn't get a reaction. It's all right. I don't know about you, but I have never seen a greeting card quote any of those passages. Have you? But I don't you think it'd be great if Hallmark would come out with a whole new line of Christian cards that would be like this. It'd be like, congratulations, thinking of you, happy birthday. And then on the inside, it'd be like, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy be turned to gloom. But it'd be in a real nice calligraphy script. So, I mean, you know, it seemed like, gosh, that seemed like it was going to be a nice card, but there it is. Okay. These are some tough readings this morning. Why does Moses want God to kill him? Why does James tell us to weep and mourn? Why does Jesus tell us to gouge out our eyes and chop off our hands and feet? Well, I could have written about four different sermons for this Sunday because each of these readings has so much to say. The passage from Numbers shows us that, yeah, there are going to be times when we just feel like Moses was feeling. Like, we cannot take it anymore. We're going to feel overwhelmed. And we might even feel like we've been abandoned by God. And in those moments, Moses shows us what we can do. We can bring our grievances to God. We can be totally honest with Him. We can tell Him how we feel. We can take our anger to Him and our frustration to Him. And, uh, and the thing is, we don't have to be perfectly in order to approach God. We don't have to have everything right. We can come to him with all the broken pieces of our lives. And we can, uh, and we can just tell him, hey, hey God, would, would you fix this for me? Just like one of my little boys does. When, when one of his toys breaks, he comes to me and he says, Daddy, can you fix this? That's what we can say to God in those times when our life seems like it's coming out of control. We can also say to him, kill me now! <laughs> And maybe he won't do it. Maybe he'll have a different way of fixing the problem like he did in the passage. I'd love to preach that sermon today because I know that some people, maybe some of you right here, are, are just like that. This is the way you're feeling right now about life. And you, and you don't feel like you can handle it anymore. You just don't know what to do. Well, you can do like Moses did. You can cry out to God and you can say, Here, Daddy, will you fix this? Then there's that other part of the Numbers reading that, uh, that, we, could, that we could talk about. Um, it tells us that we don't have to go it alone. When Moses brought his broken and tired self to God, when he cried out to him that he couldn't handle the burden of the people anymore, God's response was, Moses, you don't have to do this alone. And God gave him a community 
that 70 elders, that, that group of 70 elders, to share his burden. I mean, if you're facing hard things if you're in your life, if you're feeling like it's all too much and you're just so overwhelmed, then listen to this. You don't have to go through it alone. Do like Moses did. Cry out to God. Tell Him how you feel. And let God give you a community. Let Him surround you with a people who can help you to carry that burden. That's what the church is for. To be a community of people living in true fellowship with one another. And when I say fellowship, I don't mean hanging out after a service and drinking uh, lemonade. That's not what fellowship is. Fellowship is about really being with people. Really sharing life together. Sharing each other's burdens. There'd be another sermon that I'd love to preach today. Then there's the gospel. The gospel reading would also be fun to preach because, you know, it's shocking to hear Jesus say that we should cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes if they cause us to stumble and sin. It sounds so gruesome. But when we think about what we were made for, when we think about what we were made for, which is to love God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, loving Him with every fiber of our being, and then when we realize that those things that cause us to sin, that, that sin in our lives makes, us, makes it impossible for us to live like that, makes it impossible for us to love God like that, you know what we realize? We realize that when Jesus tells us to cut it off and to gouge it out, he's not talking about self-mutilation. He's talking about self-liberation. Not mutilation, but liberation. Because without those things in our lives that cause us to sin, then we would be free to love God to the full. We would be free to love him as he deserves to be loved. We would be free to love him with everything in us because the parts that were in us that were keeping us from loving him, they would be gone. I'd love to preach that sermon today too. But instead, we're going to focus on the reading from James today because in it, we see what the Christian life is meant to look like. This is what, it's, this is what it looks like. It starts with choosing sides, then cultivating a relationship with God. And in that relationship exposes the darkness and the depth of our sins. And then that exposure leads us to a place of humility, of mourning and humility before God. And then when we have reached that place of humility before God, that's when God lifts us up. That's when we experience the true life and joy of the Lord. All of this has one great big backdrop, and that is the grace of God. None, nothing that James tells us is possible without God's grace in our lives. Okay, this passage comes right in the middle of a diatribe against uh, the church. James has been speaking to believers, some of whom are living worldly lives, and he's exhorting them to recommit themselves to God. And this is the thing. For James, faith isn't simply believing that something is true. For James, faith is actually living like it's true. Not just believing it's true, but living like it's true. 
And, it, and, and, and here's the thing. I mean, if you, if you put it into a different context, if you think about if somebody, if you were sitting in your home watching a football game yesterday and your neighbor ran over and said, hey, your house is on fire. And you said, yeah, you know what? I believe that. I believe that's true. And then didn't do anything about it. You know, I smell the smoke. It's kind of getting warm in here, but... Um, and so, yeah, I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. I believe it 100%. No problem. But then you didn't do a thing. You're like just keeping on watching the games. You had to picture in picture and, you know, going back and forth between, you know, then it wouldn't look like to anybody else that you actually believed that, you, that, that your house was on fire. You just said you did. I believe it. But you weren't actually letting your life live out that belief. Does that make sense? Okay. You do something about it if you believed it. You'd take action. Well, James wants Christians to live as if they really believed the gospel was true. And just like today, there were people back then who said that they believed in Jesus, but their lives didn't look like it at all. And so James writes this letter to them. And two-thirds of the way through, we come across this, this section that we're looking at today. And so if you don't mind, get your bulletins out, and I want you to look at what James says with me, okay? Um, I need a bulletin so I can find out where on the page it is because they don't have any numbers. All right, let's see. James. Okay, right here. Right at the beginning, look what he says. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know why James calls them an adulterous people? It's because over and over in the Bible, God's people are described as God's bride. And God is their faithful husband. And over and over again, his bride proves unfaithful to him. His bride gives herself to other gods. She becomes obsessed with worldly, worldly riches and worldly power. And she commits adultery as a whole people. And James says that the very same thing is happening amongst the Christians. They're making friends with the world. They're making friends with the agents and the systems that are opposed to God's rule. And by doing that, they have made themselves enemies of God. But listen to what James says next in verse six. This is right at the bottom of the page. But he, that is God, gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives all the more grace. God gives more grace. Do you, do you know what that means? It means that no matter what we do, no matter how friendly we get with the world, no matter how much we align ourselves with the enemies of God, no matter how adulterous and sinful we become, God remains our faithful husband. And he is tirelessly on our side. He always has more grace for us. And his grace is never just merely sufficient. It's never just a little bit dripped out of an eyedropper. His grace is, is, is super abundant. He always has more and more and more grace to give. His resources never run out. His patience is never exhausted. He never stops pursuing us, his bride. No matter what we've done, he always gives more grace. 
And who receives grace? James tells us in verse 6 that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And it's the humble that receive more grace. And then James tells us in verse 7 through 10 how to be those humble recipients of grace. How to cultivate that humility before God. Look at verse 7. This is on the next page at the top. It says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know what you do? You submit to God and you resist the devil. It's really easy in James's world. It's real easy in this world that we live in. Submit to God and resist the devil. In other words, choose sides. There's a battle on. So enlist with God. Make him your commander and make the devil your enemy. There can be no ambiguity about whose side you're on. There should be no doubt in your mind. There should be no doubt in your mind or anybody else's mind, for that matter, about whose side you're on. That's the first point that James makes about the Christian life. There's a war going on, and we've got to choose sides. The next thing that James says to do is to actively cultivate a close relationship with God. Verse 8 says this, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That's so simple. And the thing is, we all know how to do this instinctively. For the last five years, I've been working with college students. And I saw it time and time again. When a guy would want to draw near to a girl, he knew exactly what to do. And you know what he did first? He would stalk her on Facebook. <laughs> it's totally true. This is not appropriate for your relationship with God, though. So it's not a great analogy. But if a guy wants to pursue a, a relationship with a girl, then he does research. He finds out what she likes. She want, he, he, he finds out where she goes, where she hangs out, who her friends are. I want to be with her and around her and, 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 and find out how to impress her and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's the, way, that's the way it happens in college. That's the way it happens in life. We all know how this works. And with God, you do, this, you do the same thing. You do some research. You spend time with people who know him. That's called fellowship. And you spend time reading his word. You read the Bible. You go to church and you offer him your worship. You spend time speaking to him in prayer. You purposely go out of your way to know him. And James says, as you do that, unlike some person that you might pursue a relationship with, James says that as you draw near to God, guess what? It's a sure thing with him. He draws near to you. Because he already desires to have that relationship with you. With God, it's a sure thing. As you draw near to Him, He draws near to you. And that nearness to God will begin to change you. His holiness and His purity will expose the darkness and the depth of your own sinfulness. That's the third thing that James tells us. All right, look back at verse 8 in the bulletin. He says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's only natural that as we cultivate a nearness to God, that we will become uh, more and more aware of our own sinfulness. We will see that we really are double-minded and that our hearts really are confused and have divided loyalties. And we will want more and more to purge ourselves of that sin. And so James tells us to cleanse our hands 
James doesn't tell us to cut them off. He just says, cleanse them. To do away with sinful acts. To purify your hearts. To rid your hearts of those sinful thoughts and selfless desires. I want you to notice this too. This purifying that James is talking about, this is something that we do after, that we have, after we have drawn near to God. It's not something that we have to do so that God will accept us. It's something that we do because He has already accepted us. One of the ways that we draw near to God here at Apostles by the Sea every Sunday is in Holy Communion. And you know what we say in the prayer after we receive Holy Communion? Remember how that prayer goes? This is how, this is how it goes. This is what we say. Eternal God, Heavenly Father, you have graciously accepted us. I mean, that is one of the most profound things that we could say to him. To ha actually have the realization that he has accepted us. Unbelievable. He's graciously accepted us. It's amazing. And then we close the prayer. We say, grant us strength and courage to love and serve you with gladness and singleness of heart. Not dividedness of heart, singleness of heart. In the first part of the prayer, we thank God for graciously accepting us. In the second part, we ask Him to help us stay consistent and undivided in our loyalty to Him. We ask for undivided hearts. We enact every Sunday as we receive Holy Communion what James is talking about right here. God accepts us. And then we ask Him to give us undivided hearts. That brings us to the next thing that James says. In verse 9, James tells us that once we have drawn near to God and have faced the realities of our own sinfulness, the only proper response is mourning. Verse 9 says, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection and gloom. I think the best example of this sort of thing is found in the sixth chapter of Isaiah. When Isaiah has gone to the temple to worship, and, and who does he, he meet there? You'll never guess. He meets God Almighty in the temple. And, and just listen to how it affected Isaiah. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And this is the thing. This is what he says. And I cried, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Confronted. With the holiness of God, Isaiah pronounced woe on himself. He said he was lost. He said he was ruined by that experience. Who knows if it's a good or a bad thing for a prophet to pronounce woe on something? Okay, it's really bad. You don't, if a prophet comes and says, woe is you, woe to you, bad. Stop doing what you're doing and repent immediately. And Isaiah pronounced woe on himself. See, when he drew near to God, God's holiness had exposed Isaiah's sin. And he was immediately undone by this. And he mourned his sin in the presence of a holy God. 
The saints knew that feeling well. One of the things that you find if you read about any of the most any of the famous saints is that they hated sin. They hated it because of the way it dishonored God. They hated it because it allowed darkness into their hearts. They hated it because it gave the devil a small victory in their lives. And so they did everything to root it out, everything they could to, to, to cut it from their lives. That's what Jesus is talking about when he told us to cut off and gouge out those things that cause sin in our lives. And James wants us to hate sin like that. He wants us to know the depth of our sin so that we will mourn our sinfulness and be humble before God. And James tells us that when we have reached that place of humility before God, that's when God lifts us up. And then true joy comes. Back in your bulletin, in verse 10, James says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Don't exalt yourself. You'll only be humbled. But if you humble yourself before God, then God will exalt you. What an amazing thing. That's why we lament and we mourn and we weep. Because our sin keeps us from loving God fully. And so we mourn our sin. We confess it before God. And we say with Isaiah, woe is me. And from that place of humility before God, we find that God then lifts us up. What a great thing is that. That is what the Christian life is meant to look like. Christians are meant to live as, they really, as if they really believed that the gospel is true. And in order to do that, James tells us that we've got to choose sides. We've got to be clear about who we serve. We've got to serve God and make the devil our enemy. Then we cultivate a relationship with God. We draw near to Him, spend time with Him, get to know Him, and He draws near to us. And it's a sure thing with God. And then that relationship exposes the darkness and the depths of our sin. And then the reality of our sinfulness causes us to mourn and lament and weep. And it teaches us to be humble before the Lord. And then, when we have reached, by God's grace, that place of humility before God, that's when God lifts us up. And that's when we experience the true and lasting joy of life with Him. What a great thing. What a great thing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your, uh, for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for these awesome readings today. Thanks for the challenge that they are to us. Thanks for not being content to leave us in our wretchedness, but for sending your only son to redeem us. Lord, every one of us here knows that our hearts are divided. We don't always make it clear whose side that we're on. Lord, give us the grace that we need today to make a firm and total commitment to you. To live our lives as if we really believed. God, give us a hatred for sin in our lives. Expose those areas in our lives that, that need to be purged or, or cut off or gouged out. And then give us the strength to do it. Or we want to be free to love you with our whole hearts. We want to be free to love you and worship you with every fiber of our being.
Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.